0: What a friend. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to the very back of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, as we continue our sermon series called The Triumph of the Lamb. I think we're in actually part six this morning. Uh, What a joy it has been to journey together. We're going to be looking at the first five chapters of the book of Revelation. And as we started King's Chapel, started a church, really was convicted that what we need to have is a new, fresh church, is a clear understanding, a portrait of who Jesus is as this triumphant Lamb of God. And what Revelation 1 does, it shows us the resurrected Christ in such beautiful, vivid colors. It's a little bit different than the rest of the Bible, especially as you read through the gospel and you get a picture of who Jesus was as he walked the earth. And we need that picture and we see him in Bethlehem and we need that picture and we see him on the cross and we need that picture and we see the empty tomb and we need that picture. But then God's wisdom also shows us a picture of who he is now as this resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so in chapter one, we see it and it's, wow, it's awe filled. I mean, it's amazing. So much so that one of his best friends, one of his closest friends on earth, when he saw him, he like fell down as a dead man and said, wow, this Jesus really is all powerful. He's also all all good. But we not only need to see the picture of who he is to rightly understand him and worship him, we also need to hear the message he has for the church. And so what happens in the book of Revelation, especially in, verse, in chapters 2 and 3, is there are seven churches in Asia Minor that get a letter. It's all a part of one big letter, actually. And they're addressing specific issues in the church. And because it's God's word, because it's holy, because it's inerrant, because it's a living word, it's for us today. So here's the deal. King's Chapel, we need to hear this stuff. We need to hear this stuff because God himself is speaking to his church. So we've got to draw near and say, okay, God, how does this show us us? What does this tell us about what we need to do better? What does this tell us about what we need to celebrate and focus on? And this morning, we're going to look at Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira <laughs> is the church uh, that we're looking at. I listen at my wife because all week I was like, Thyatira, Thyatira. And I get up there and I mess it up. Thyatira. Say it with me. Thyatira. So we're going to look at Thyatira. And this is a church that really looked good on Sundays. This is a church, as we look at the good stuff, they had a lot of good stuff. Um, They did a lot of really, really good things. As a matter of fact, you can kind of look at the description of Thyatira and you can say, wow, they're awesome. But this is a church, now watch this, this is a church that was good on Sundays and not so good Monday through Saturday. This is a church that, that probably if you went to their service, you'd say, man, these guys are spot on. But if you saw them in the business world, if you hung out with them, you'd say, there's no difference. There doesn't seem to be a difference between who these people are and who we are as pagans. They say they know Jesus. And so there was a big discrepancy between Sunday and non-Sunday for this church. And what happened is this, the church uh, had a self-proclaimed prophetess. And this self-proclaimed prophetess was teaching. Uh, her teaching was seducing the church and the church members into behavior that was t- deplorable. She was basically saying this. All you got to do is believe in Jesus. If you confess that he's Lord, then just do what you want to do. If you if, if your pagan neighbors, if people are doing these things, do them too. So it doesn't really matter. It's what really matters is, is that you confess Jesus as Lord. Well, we all know that that's really important, but it's very important in what we do as well. The church at Thyatira was tolerating this false prophet, embracing her teaching. It's interesting. Let me tell you a little bit about the city. It was the smallest and least significant of all the churches, according to history, historians. Of all the churches we looked at, smallest population, right around 25,000 probably, when it was written. Uh, Least significant historically. And yet, guess what? It gets the longest letter. Isn't that typical? It gets the most ink. Uh, God's going to tell them a lot of things. This city is not known for its politics. It's not even known for its religion. We've looked at some cities uh, that were like Pergamum, was known for a hotbed of a lot of different religions. Uh, Ephesus was probably an incredible industrial city known for many things. Uh, But Thyatira, uh, it was basically a commerce city. It was a city of commerce, known more for commerce. But what they were specifically known for in industry and commerce were these trade guilds. Uh, they were a lot of tanners, uh, or silversmiths, or tailors, or bakers. Um, as a matter of fact, Lydia, uh, if you remember in Acts chapter 16, who comes to Christ, Lydia was in Philippi at the time, but she was from this city and she was a trader in purple goods. But here's the reality: so each one of these trade guilds, uh, each one of this, like the tanner, smith, or or, or the silversmith, or whoever. They all had their kind of pagan gods that they would worship. The worship of this particular commerce was this god. And they all had their own festivals, kind of their own initiation rituals. So here's the point. If you were a part of this society and you worked for one of them, you were expected to sacrifice to their gods. You were expected to hang out in their initiation rituals. And that usually led to a lot of bad things. The pressure on the church was to conform to the world because of business. Sound familiar? Sounds like where we are today. Business practices and ethics were colliding with Christian ethics. And you have this false teacher that you're going to hear, the the title she's given is Jezebel, seducing the church uh, to immoral behavior. Um, What we're going to look at is this. We're going to look at who the risen Jesus is, We're going to see what the risen Jesus knows. We're going to see what the risen Jesus praises. We're going to see what the risen Jesus rebukes, what the risen Jesus desires, and what the risen Jesus promises all in this little letter. It's pretty absolutely amazing. So again, let's pick up where we left off. uh, Revelations chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18. Read through verse 29. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and your servants and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. It seems so appropriate, so appropriate to us that this was a church that was really good on Sundays and struggled the rest of the days. Struggled not to become just like their neighbors. The the business world of the time really influenced them in a negative way, that they were tolerating what they should never have tolerated. And that was a false teacher and someone who was leading them, leading them astray into some immoral behavior. Oh God, it's convicting because it seems like that's what the church so often does. We're so tempted to do just become just like the world around us. But God, we're your bride. We're to be a city on a hill. You want us to be a unique people belonging to you. You want us to be holy because you are holy. Oh, God, may your spirit come and remind us of this truth. Oh, God, would you give us ears to hear your voice this morning? Would you give us minds to understand your word? Would you give us hearts that would embrace your truth And God, would you be with us so powerfully that you would give us feet that would not only walk in the manner worthy of your name, but that you would make us zealous for good works, that you would make us desiring holiness because you are holy. That was the big hole in Thyatira. They just didn't have holiness. And your church always should. God, the things that I say that are wrong or merely my opinion. May those things fall away and be forgotten. But the things that are said are true and contain the good news of the gospel, would you use those things to make us more like your Son, our Savior Jesus? In its matchless name that we pray. Amen. Like all letters, he's going to kind of describe to us who he is. He's going to describe to us what he knows He's gonna describe to us the good things, the bad things, the things he wants. So an important letter, and this is interesting. So let's jump in. Who is this risen Jesus? Who the risen Jesus is? It first of all says that he is the son of God. Now something happens here for the first time and only time in the letters to the churches. It's the first description that is given that was not already used in chapter one. Every time that Jesus describes who he is to the churches, he's pulling back out of the portrait in chapter 1. But here, and only here in the book of Revelation, he says, he is the Son of God. Now, this is something that we learn throughout Scripture. It's very, very important. It's going to tell us that this Jesus has amazing authority. It's also going to start resonating with us. This whole letter really sounds a lot like Psalm chapter 2. It sounds a lot like other places in Scripture. So when it tells us who he is, he is the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, you think authority. You can't have more authority than the Son of God has. But it's more than that. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Uh, This sounds a little bit like Daniel's prophecy being fulfilled. Probably the language here is we're seeing Scripture being fulfilled. But what does it mean he has eyes like a flame of fire? Well, he sees it all. It's saying that God sees it all. He can see into the dark. I mean, He can see into our hearts, into our minds. We're going to learn about it in just a moment. And so, this is who He is. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, and He has feet are burnished bronze. Now, again, trying to figure out what does this burnished bronze mean? Another vivid uh, description that we'll see fulfilled from the book of Daniel that this is prophecy being fulfilled in this Jesus, which is beautiful. But burnish bronze, it of talks about his purity and also his strength and stability, but also his ability to bring judgment, that he can bring judgment. That's what he is. So who is this risen Jesus? But what does this risen Jesus know? It's very important. He says this. Again, we've been been looking at this. He knows your works, similar to what he said uh, to the church of Ephesus. Remember what he said to the church in uh, Smyrna. I I know your persecution. I know your trials. Remember what he said to the church uh, in Pergamum. I know where you live. And now he's going to go back and he goes, hey, I know your works. I I know what you're doing. I know what you're all about. Because he sees the reality of that. But he knows more than that. He also knows her works. This is uh, the evil works of a woman named Jezebel. So he's aware of us. He's aware of an evil world, and he also obviously knows his works, uh, the things that he's calling us to do. But I think what we got to look at this when what does God know? And ask the question, well, how does the risen Jesus know this? How does he know this? Well, he is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, he obviously knows all things. Uh, I love the fact that says his eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees all things. Hit pause. There's a good and bad of this. But the good is your God knows you. He really does. There's nothing he doesn't know about you. There's nothing that darkness is hiding from him. There's nothing that surprises him about you and me. He knows us. He knows us for who he is. He knows us because he's got these eyes that he can see all and he loves us. But we also got to be aware of we can't hide anything from him, right? We're an open book. God knows our junk. He knows what we're drawn to. He knows our flesh. He knows what we're struggling uh, with as well. And he goes on to say this. Interesting. I am he who searches mind and heart. Uh, By the way, the Greek here is he searches our kidneys and our heart. Uh, The kidneys will be more that they thought of. Of, of the mind and the heart of, of uh, knowing those emotions. The kidneys are more emotions, I should say, and the heart of mind is what they thought of. It's rightly translated, your mind and heart. It's kind of interesting to see where the Greek back then thought of these things. But it's basically saying this, I'm the one who searches mind and heart. God knows not only your actions, he knows your motivation. He not only knows what you say, he knows what you think. He is aware of it all we are an open book to him. Jesus knows it. And he knows what's happening in that church. And he knows what's happening in our church. So you have this risen Jesus, who he is. We know, now know uh, what he knows and how he knows it. But what the risen Jesus praises, and it's a beautiful thing. He starts off as, I know you love. I know you love me. And I know you love your neighbor. And that's really important because without love, you're nothing. So I'm aware that you have love. And it's so important that the church never lose the foundation of love. But he adds on to that. He goes, I also know your faith. I know that you will say Jesus is Lord. This was so important. Don't forget the time that they lived in that the world around them was saying Caesar is Lord or a lot of pagan deity is Lord. And they had by God's grace, they had this gift of faith where they were able to say, I know who Jesus is. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. He is my savior. So when they say, I know your faith, I mean, that's an incredible thing to praise. But more than that, I know your service. It wasn't just a head knowledge. They were working. They were doing some things for the Lord. And not only that, they were enduring. They had patient endurance. So the patient endurance, you could probably get the word hope. For some of you, you might think of Paul's triad of faith, hope, and love. You have this beautiful triad of faith, hope, and love in this church. They had those things, but they also had growth. Hey, he says, I know that your latter works are better than your beginning, that you're growing. A church should be growing. So let's hit pause and say, okay, church, how are we doing? Do we have love? Do we have love for God? Do we have love for one another? How are we doing? Do we have faith? Do we have faith that Jesus is Lord and faith to walk in that faith? Are we providing service? Are we walking out our faith? Are we enduring patiently? Do we have hope? And are we growing? Uh, Our latter works exceeding the first. What I love about this is this is almost the opposite of the church of, of Ephesus. Ephesus lacked love and growth. If you remember back then, he says, "Hey." You guys have stopped doing what you should. You should go back to the beginning. Um, Ephesus uh, didn't have the right heart. They seemed to be in decline. But you know what's interesting about Ephesus? They wouldn't tolerate evil. They wouldn't tolerate false teachers. They rooted them out. Um, but that's not what Thyatira did. Thyatira embraced him. So what does the risen Jesus rebuke? It's interesting. It's really the question is this. Who and what does the risen Jesus rebuke? And he rebukes, and why is the lack of holiness. What's he rebuking? It scares me. How would you like to be rebuked? But God is going to rebuke those with false teachers. What did they rebuke? Well, they tolerated Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is a title. If you read through the Old Testament, you would be aware of the name Jezebel. Jezebel was a pagan who, who would marry uh, the king of Israel. And the king of Israel at the time was a guy named Ahab, and he was not a good guy. Uh, he, he too and was involved in all kinds of Baal worship. Uh, they turned God's people from worshiping the true God to the false gods. And this Jezebel would, would lead the people into a, a lot of not only false worship, but in a lot of sexual morality. I mean, she was kind of became known as a Jezebel. I guarantee you, you know the word Jezebel. You don't name your daughter Jezebel. There's a reason why I don't say very too many Jezebels running around, because what dad wants their daughter to be Jezebel? And if you have a kid named Jezebel, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but, uh, but you should know better. You know, you know, you don't want your kids, your grandkids. Jezebel, I want your child's name. Oh, it's Jezebel. Oh, good good for her. Keep my boys away from that one. Jezebel had this, this basic um, moniker that she was bad news. She was bad news because she worshiped a false God, but she did more than that. She led other people into really sinful immoral behavior. She led God's people astray. So here's this false prophetess that is called Jezebel. It's really interesting as well. It could read in the Greek that this Jezebel uh, was the wife of the pastor's wife. Um, Most would say no, but the way it is there, is it a wife or who is she? She's a leader. She's a self-proclaimed prophetess, but they tolerated her. They tolerated her and they tolerated uh, her, her teaching. Um, And again, they tolerated her. And she. I love what the word of the Lord says, that she would seduce my servants. This is the church. This is someone who was in the church that was being tolerated that led the church to practice sexual immorality and participate in pagan activities. She probably says, no big deal. There was a belief then that what matters is the soul. The Gnostics would probably believe this matter is bad. The whole thing is as long as you're saved, do whatever you want. As long as Jesus is Lord, it doesn't matter. You can get involved in all kinds of immorality, and you know, it's not going to hurt you as long as you have your soul that is clean. But the problem is this it's not biblical. You see, God is holy. God is, God is holy, he's without sin. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we have to know this about holy God. Scripture says that his anger burns against those who seduce his people into sin. God hates it. And he hates it in his church when there's people who will lead his people into the wrong thing. He get really upset because God is holy. God desires to have his bride, his church be holy. I mean, throughout scripture, He calls us his beloved throughout scripture. He calls us his bride and he wants to say, do not commit adultery against me because you're mine. What is committing adultery in God's mind to his bride? It's false teaching. It's it's running after false gods. It's putting yourself before God. And so he says, listen, that's all wrong because you're mine and I love you. And he, he cleanses us and purifies us. But God's will for us is to be holy. That's what he desires for his, his bride. So, here's we, here we are, church. We can say that we know for sure that God's desire for us at King's Chapel is to be holy. Why? Because He is holy. We're going to talk about that. Let's unpack that. So, what the risen Jesus desires? God's will is for our holiness. Don't ever miss it. When God's word speaks and he said, this is God's will, you really want to lean in because sometimes we're trying to figure out God's will. But listen to what 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8 says. It's really powerful. For it says this, for this is the will of God. Okay, for those of us who have a hard time, sometimes not seeing things directly, this one says, for this is the will of God, your holiness or your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles or the heathens who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's very clearly saying it's God's will for us to be holy. It's God's will for us to avoid sexual immorality. It's God's will for us to learn to control our bodies in a holy and honorable way. And if we don't listen to this, it's not just disrespecting man, it's disrespecting God and his Holy Spirit. It's not only God's will for us to be holy. It's God's purpose for us to be holy. So I want to read you uh, Ephesians 1.4. It's a great passage that reminds us of God's sovereignty over uh, our redemption and election. But it tells us more. It says this, Ephesians 1.4. Even as he, God the Father, chose us in him, God the Son, even as he, the Father, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is amazing that God's saying, before I created anything, I loved you. And before I created anything, I wanted you and I rescued you. So he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, here's how he chose us. Here's the purpose. That we should be holy and blameless before him in his sight. He wants us to be like him. He says, my whole deal is, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to place a love on you, but the purpose for this is to make you something. It's to make you not only mine, but make you beautiful in Christ Jesus. That our purpose is holiness. And God's redemption is for our holiness. The reason that Jesus has appeared and brought us salvation is so that we can be more like him, so that we can be holy. Listen to Titus two eleven through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, this is his first appearing, his first advent, bringing salvation for all people, Um, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, there's a second coming, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is what it's saying. God has appeared in flesh to redeem and rescue us, to make us his own and to make us holy and make us zealous for good works. God's desire for his church is to be like him, holy. Now it's interesting, two things we can't miss as we, as we take this point to its conclusion. One is this, holiness without licentiousness. There is something that's happening in the early church called antinomianism. Antinomianism is basically the belief, anti, not, and, and, and it comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law. It means there's no law. And here, you guys have heard this. It basically says this. If you are a Christian, Jesus has done it all. And because he's done it all, there's nothing for you to do. And because there's nothing for you to do, it doesn't matter how you live. It's all been fulfilled. It's all covered in the blood. And it's true, it has been fulfilled. It's true, it is covered in the blood. But we are not to live as if there's no law. We are to live now with the law of the gospel, the law that God has given to us in Christ Jesus to love God and love our as ourselves. And we can't, we can't just live as if there's no restrictions. But here's what we also can't do. Holiness without legalism. The church swings to one or two extremes. Either we say we're saved by grace through faith and do whatever you want to do, Or, oh my goodness, here are a list of rules and regulations that you better do for God to love you and accept you. Both are wrong. Did you hear me? Both are wrong. I mean, he does not want us to live legalistic lives. I love, look at verse 24. He says, I do not lay on you any other burden. There's no other burden. He's not saying, okay, you come to Christ Jesus, you're saved now, make make sure you do this, make sure you do that, make sure you get circumcised, uh, make sure you're following this, following that. He wants us to live a certain way, but he doesn't burden us. He wants us to live free. Throughout the gospel, we're continually proclaimed, you and I are free in Christ. We're freed from the burden of sin. We're freed from the penalty of sin. Uh, One day we'll be freed from the presence of sin, but we're free. People sometimes think I'm free to do whatever I want. You and I are free to do that which God intends. It makes a difference. We are free to do what God intends. And that's for us to be more like him. That's for us to live our lives in a holy way before him. You're going to mess it up. I'm going to mess it up. We're going to fall short and there's grace and forgiveness. But the calling is for us to be a church that's holy The calling is not for us to be a church on Sunday and just like the world Monday through Saturday. Our life should be markedly different because of the mark of Christ upon us, because of who he is. Holiness without licentiousness, not saying, oh, it just doesn't matter. It's all covered. Or without legalism, the two of those wrong. we got to find the gospel in between them. We are free in Christ Jesus. God's desire for his church is to be pure. And I love the fact. He gives them time to repent. He says, listen, I've given you time to repent. And God is slow to anger, Scripture tells us. He's merciful, abounding in grace and mercy. And he loves us to repent. I love what Scripture says Ezekiel will say. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. I mean, God loves to show mercy. And he even here is saying to Jezebel, repent, repent, repent. I'm giving you time. Repent. And if you don't, this is what's going to happen. That, that bed of sexual immorality is going to become a bed of death. And everything you're producing your children, of what's produced out of this is going to die in Paris. Repent. And even as he's talking about judgment, he says, this is going to happen unless you repent. God is so merciful. He gives time to repent. He gives us a pattern to seek repentance and to be made pure. By the way, uh, the church should know Matthew chapter 18. It's a very clear biblical uh, teaching. If someone like this Jezebel is in sin, you're to go to her and you can tell her, hey, you're you're not living right. You're not to do it in a haughty manner. You got to do it carefully so you don't fall as well. And if she doesn't listen, scripture says, take somebody else with you and, and maybe together say, because we love you and God loves you and, and we really want you right. This is a biblical pattern. And if then it doesn't work, take it to the church. And the point is, God is saying, I want my bride pure. And this is really important for us. I want you to repent, but here's a pattern. And ultimately, he brings judgment. He will. Let me ask you the question. What do you need to repent of that you're tolerating? What are you tolerating in your life? What practice do you need to surrender? What do you need to confess where is your Monday through Saturday work week in conflict for your Sunday Christianity? We all got it. Where is it? But we can't end without some amazing good news. What there is in Jesus promises. He promises two things, and it kind of sounds crazy. It's, it's something we've got to dig a little bit into. But the first thing is this. He promises authority to rule the nations. <laughs> Something you woke up praying for, right? God, give me, a, give me authority to rule the nations with you. But you got to see, it's really cool. And he gives us something else. He gives us the morning star. So Jesus is basically, when he gives us the authority to rule the nations, Jesus is sharing with us the inheritance his father gave to him. And when he gives us the morning star, Jesus is sharing with, himself, uh, with us his very self. Psalm 2. I'm going to look at Psalm 2, which is a short psalm. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. It's a psalm um, that really points to Jesus. And if you can maybe have the revelation what we just read in your mind, this is really where much of that comes from. It says this: Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, as Christ Jesus and our, our Savior, and against His anointed, saying, "Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us." He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify him in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now lean in, don't miss this. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession.'" You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Write what we read in Revelation. Write what was told to the church. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take uh, refuge in him. He's basically saying this. Scripture tells us that all the nations are given to Jesus as an inheritance. They all will come. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not every person, but everybody who is his is going to come. And one day we're going to rule. So he says, you know what I'm going to give you? You're going to rule with me. The authority the Father gave to me, I'm going to give to you. I don't know what it all means. I don't even know if I've ever asked for it. And I don't even necessarily know what it means that we're going to have this Iron rod that's going to dash to pieces. But it's basically saying this. Think of how small and how insignificant this church was. And now all of a sudden Jesus says, you're going to have it all. There's a day coming. There's a day coming. I'm going to share everything with you. Then he says this weird thing. "Is the morning star. I'm going to give you the morning star. And you get to the end of the book, the very last chapter, the very end of the story. And you find out who the morning star is. It's Jesus, And he says this, I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give you myself. Not just religion, not just close relate. I'm going to give you me. I'm going to give you what I have. I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to give you my blood. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to give you my inheritance. I'm going to give you my name. I'm going to give it all to you. A God who says, I'm going to give it all to you. Those who conquer in Christ Jesus. He couldn't give us more. He won't give us less. That is the beauty of the gospel. For a church that was flirting with the world, wondering if the world had something that that they needed or could offer. He's like, forget that. It leads to death. Come to me and you will receive everything.